Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Paul Bunyan, Superman, Cinderella, and Molly Brown are all figures of legend and myth. Only one of them has a reality that is far more dramatic than anything Hollywood could manufacture. Her life is an example of truth being greater than fiction. The Let's talk about Molly Brown. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1867, Johann Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz was first performed. Jesse James was Robin Banks in the Midwest. Congress approved the Lincoln Memorial. The U.S. buys Alaska from Russia for $7 million. Queen Victoria has the foundation laid for Royal Albert Hall. Ready Mix Paint is patented. And on July 18, 1867, Margaret Tobin was born. Let's tell you a Wild West tall tale, Once Upon a Time. A tiny baby entered this world in a most dramatic fashion. Born during a terrible storm of tornadoes and floods, her mother dies, and she's raised on the goat's milk by drunken father Seamus. She determined that she is going to move to Leadville and marry a rich man. She becomes a saloon girl to pay the bills. And one day meets poor minor J.J. Brown. This is not the man she had envisioned for herself. She was going to marry money. Until one day, J.J. Brown strikes gold and she decides he's the man for her. They make piles and piles of money, which she stores in her wood stove. Until J.J. Brown comes home in a drunken stupor and lights the stove on fire, sending all that not-hard-earned money up in smoke. Oh, no! Her dreams are washed away. But have no fear, J.J. goes outside and finds a brand new gold mine. They're back in the money, and they decide to move to Denver. Where these rough diamonds are not accepted by Denver society, and so they go to Europe, where crowned heads were charmed by her and polished her up. On her way back home, she boards the Titanic, where she single-handedly saves the lives of women and children in the lifeboat, giving them her clothes, stripping down to bare nothing in the frigid air, keeping their spirits up by singing until they're all rescued and proclaiming herself the unsinkable Molly Brown. She returns to Denver to a hero's welcome and reunites with her love, J.J. Brown, where they live happily ever after. The end. Except that wonderful tale is only about 5% true. Hmm. Let's talk about the real Molly Brown, Margaret Tobin Brown. Margaret Brown was born to John and Johanna Tobin. She was the middle child of six of their in their blended family. Um, so they were born. She was born in Hannibal, Missouri. Did you know she was from Mark Twain's hometown? I know. How cool is that? She played in the same woods that Tom Sawyer did. <gasps> Ooh. Ooh. Hannibal, Missouri sure knows that she's from there. You can actually still tour her childhood home. How cool is that? It's on Butler Street. It's a four-room house, and eight people lived in this four-room house, so it's quite modest. But they were doing okay for that town, and for Irish immigrants, which is what they were, they rode the wave of immigration over from the potato famine and landed in the heartland. Mm -hmm. Now, it's still the era of the Irish being marginalized a little bit. Like, if we hear that accent, the pay scale is going to be different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But they were all together. It was a very strong Catholic community. And they were all together. And they were no worse or better off than their neighbors. And, you know, it was a nice place to grow up. They all looked out for each other in this community. Her father was a manual laborer. And he also um, had some turns as a riverboat office clerk. But he was very ambitious for his children, and he instilled in all of them a work ethic. Yeah, that, and education was very important to this family. They All the kids got tricked down to the schoolhouse and got educated through the eighth grade, which was pretty typical for the time in their class. It was their Aunt Mary O'Leary that was the teacher. Aunt Mary O'Leary. Good one. Thank you. <laughs> my, my kids can't stand my, I like, uh, St. Patrick's Day. They're like, shut up, mom. <laughs> I love it. Anyway. Well, so they had, she had a typical childhood. You know, they played in the creek. 
Her brother-in-law had a candy store, for goodness sake. How sweet is that? This is like the stuff that sweet American dreams are made out of, this story. And little gangs of kids, a la 1970s, you know, showing up at someone's house for bread and butter as a snack or whatever. Um, But everyone in this time and in this place was expected to work early and help the family out. Um, So Maggie, can we talk about the name? Yes, let's talk about the name. Here's the thing. She was born Margaret Tobin. She was called Maggie in, amongst her friends and her family. She was never called Molly. Yeah, nobody. Not nobody ever called her Molly until after her death, um, a man wrote a book called Timberline in which the character's name was Molly. And that's what stuck, which is very strange. She it, was never Molly during her life. No, and it's just kind of weird, though, where we have to refer to her that because if we said Margaret Brown, people would be like, who? Yeah. Yeah. So from now on, we've got Maggie and we've got Margaret and no Molly. Yeah. That's okay with you. Bold. Brazen. (laughs) So at 13, Maggie and a lot of other Irish girls went to work for a dollar a day at the local cigar factory. Exactly what you want your seventh grader to be doing all day. Yes. Dirty, hard, sweaty work. But that's what they all did. It was what, what happened. You went to school and then you started, you started working. And there was no, did you, okay, this shocked me to read this. Okay, now, there's efforts before this, but there's no federal child labor law that stuck until 1938. And that's only because, you know, during the Depression, men would work for child wages, so why would you hire the child? Like, basically, it was kind of like, well, I guess, you know, it's de facto that way anyway. But isn't that a long time after I thought it was? Yeah, I, I would think so. I would think so, too. So this could be the way that her life would just go. She would work until she got married, and then she'd raise some kids who would go to the mill or the or the cigar factory at 13 and blah, 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 blah. But for one key event, when she was 18, her brother Daniel, who had gone out west sent for her to come keep house for him. In Leadville, Colorado. So so Maggie and her sister Helen boarded the train and went off to Leadville. Yeah, once upon a time, some miners found gold in Leadville, and the rush was on, and alongside the gold was silver. At the early days, it was all, you know, how it is, luck and, you know, gumption, like that show on the Discovery Channel, Gold Rush. Mm-hmm. It's like dudes scraping the ground for some treasure. That's right. And they um, worked hard. Yeah, it's, it's just like some men in a dream. In Leadville, you know, you could live large. The first miners that struck a big show struck it big. By the time Maggie got there, it was basically syndicates. Mostly big mm-hmm. companies had hold of the mining operations. The the easy pickings had long since disappeared. The you know, you could just find a nugget on the ground or yeah. you know, <laughs> easy you had to have equipment, you had to have teams of men and things. You had to have education in mining yeah. and geology. It's not brain it's not it wasn't a brainless pursuit. Yeah. So the miners, instead of being entrepreneurs now, are employees. It had become more really of a pioneer town than a rootin' tootin'. Wild West gold mining experience. Mm-hmm. Maggie and her brother Daniel set to work. Um, he went to the mines, and she, she worked in a department store in the drapery department. Which I mean, she had this work ethic that she had got from her childhood in Hannibal, watching her parents and working in the cigar factory. So of course she went to work. So far from being the saloon girl that not we talked about earlier, even close not to even saloon close. girl. The reality, of course, is. So much more boring. You know. Daniel made about $2.50 a day, and Maggie earned about a dollar a day. So let's put it this way. Two people had to work a 10-hour day each to buy one bag of flour. So it's not glamorous times. No, not at all. And it's not wealthy times. But she's, she would dream of marrying someone that had money. Oh, yeah. That was her. She was determined. Yeah. That was her goal. She wanted to be the one that lifted her family out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the class of people she saw driving in these fine carriages and shopping in her store in these $40 dresses they had bought in Newport or, mm-hmm. you know, New York City or somewhere. Um, she had this wish. Her big dream was to take her father out of his grueling manual labor and give him some leisure time. That was her greatest ambition. That's that's a wonderful dream to, to have. help Pa. But true love came calling. It sure did in the form of Jim Brown. Um, she fell in love with him, and she but she had that dream. She wanted to marry rich, and old JJ wasn't rich at all at the time. But he was irresistible and charming and social, like she was herself. Like everybody knew who he was. Everybody mm-hmm. knew who she was. They were a good match. This yeah. was this was a social match within their 
their circle. It was a big deal. Dang it! Now what's she supposed to do? Well, and I actually, I love this quote. She said, this is her words. She said, I wanted a rich man, but I love Jim Brown. She she admits it. How honest is that? Here's this suitable, Catholic, lovable person wrecking her big dreams. So she finds, she marries Jim Brown and goes from cooking for her brother to moving into Jim's cabin and cooking for him. But they were happy. They were happy. Now, uh, Maggie was 19 years old and he was 32 when they were married. So there's a bit of an age difference. But I thought he was very handsome. Obviously, we'll put a picture up on our show notes, but he's a very handsome man. He shared her heritage. Even though he was from Pennsylvania, a different, you know, a different part of the country, but they also had the same faith. Um, now he was no mere minor. He was actually a superintendent and he had studied for years engineering, geology. This is no manual laborer really. Mm-hmm. Although he hadn't made his name yet, he had been making connections and a name for himself. Mm-hmm. If there was a problem, he was the guy that could rig it. To work. You know, he was the guy you need right. to have around. Right. He was pretty valuable. So they moved out of town to a two-room cabin, and they charmingly named... Stumptown. <laughs> it was, I mean, this was... If they... If Leadville was r- rugged, Stumptown was wild. They had one pump in the middle of town for everyone to get their water from. But they did have a few saloons because, you know, priorities. That's right. And everything. Um, they truly began housekeeping in a modest way, but to give you an indication that they're not at the bottom, the very first thing they did is hire a servant to help with the housekeeping. Okay, so we're not at the bottom because Mm-mm. we have a servant in the house. And they started to educate themselves a little bit more. They hired tutors um, to educate them. I mean, they were already educated-ish, mm-hmm. but reading and literature, um, they wanted to round themselves out some more. Yeah, she never stopped that. learning. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, she studied piano and singing, too. Mm-hmm. So not only just practical things, certainly not. Her whole life, she was determined to better herself, and so was her husband. It was definitely a good match. And she let the, the maid study with them as well. At five days a week, they studied. I mean, she was, she wasn't just looking out for herself to better herself. She wanted to be- better this woman that was working in her home as well. Yep. Remember that. That's the Molly Brown that you need to remember. Now, as is very common in this day and age, when you get married, probably within a year, you're going to have a baby. And that's exactly what happened. Their first baby came along. His name is Lawrence. Palmer Brown, and he was born about a year after they were married. And you know what's funny? Her daughter came after. Her daughter named Ellen, but called Helen after her sister. Wikipedia, right now, as of this taping, says these children are named Franklin and Kay, which proves once again you should never use Wikipedia. Never, ever, ever. Do your research first. Go to Wikipedia for quick facts and to say, oh, no, that's wrong. Wikipedia, bad. (laughs) So, almost her entire family moved to Leadville, um, which is awesome. So, the whole family is now out west, and that's another very common story. Mm-hmm. As one person, like, laid the groundwork, the rest of the family would come join. Right. That happened in Laura Ingalls Wilder, too. They'd mm-hmm. keep coming across family members who were slightly ahead of them. It was interesting, um, part of the Wild West. Yeah, settling. and it's kind of her doing what she wanted to do to bring her family back together. This was a tight family, mm-hmm. and she wanted to help take care of them, and this was kind of a way to sort of do that. So, so she was more well-off than most miners' wives, but nowhere near the meteoric rise from the legend. Like, nobody went outside and put a magic pickaxe in the wall and gold fell out. No, it was hard work. <laughs> it was. And, and it was years. education that led to smart moves. It had nothing to do with dumb luck. And very, very characteristic of Margaret. Her whole life, again, she took it upon herself. She was a little bit well off, and so she organized soup kitchens and charity clothing drives for the poor miners of her town. It really seems like that Hannibal help your neighbor thing Mm -hmm. really sunk in. Oh, I and she carries that through her entire life. Now, the country went through a bit of a Great Depression in 1893. It was called the Panic of 1893. And just like the Great Depression, if you can imagine what that was like, people were losing their jobs, the prices of silver, in this case, fell, like, bottomed out. And so a lot of places had to close, and the support systems had to close, and there was a lot of leaving and wandering around, and and it wasn't a happy time. But then fate smiled upon the Browns, maybe the magic pickaxe. Maybe. Before came in, the little Johnny Mine, of which J.J. was the boss of, started to hemorrhage gold. Gold. 
So no longer silver, which is depreciated in value, Mm -hmm. but gold, which is high. And so JJ um, was not only the superintendent, but with his majestic MacGyverism, figured out a way to get that gold out in the first place. And, oh, my, the mine owners were grateful. Oh, they were. They rewarded him and put him on the board and made him a part owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He became a star. He turned Leadville around. He really did. He kind of saved the bacon of all the lower members of the totem pole, too. Because mm-hmm. yeah. now the chicks making pancakes had dudes to make pancakes for. That's you right. see how it builds up from there, you know? <laughs> This find made that Brown family incredibly wealthy. This was a Mega Millions strike right there. I have right here. Lottery winner? Maybe. But it was his hard work and mm-hmm. his education that led to yeah. this. It wasn't like dumb luck, really. Picking the right numbers? No. Yeah. Not at all. So one thing that I've noticed about when in our conversations and in our research about having lots of money is the main thing it does is it lets you be yourself. It lets you have time to explore the world and it lets you have time Mm -hmm. to learn things. And one thing they chose to do almost immediately after the little Johnny Mine uh, hit it big was to go to a very exciting place called the Chicago World's Fair or the Columbian Exposition. Now, what was this thing? Well, it was... The celebration of progress. Everything was new. Everything was magical. There it was also called the White City because this magic of electricity was everywhere, and there were two hundred thousand light bulbs. That's amazing. Like, yeah, that was yeah. more light than it we'd ever seen. See, no kidding. In the nighttime, ever. Mr. Ferris's wheel made its appearance. Its debut was here. Now I am freaking scared of riding them. Now you are. So you've never rode that one in Chicago at the. Maybe here. No. I can't imagine braving the first one. Seriously, it were 36 cars and they would hold 60 people. It reminds me of the Eye, maybe. The London Eye. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. your carnival ride with the two-seater. Now, this is a big thing. It's the first appearance of the squashed penny. You know that penny you buy at the zoo for 51 cents? At the time, it was two cents. Uh Talk about inflation. Yeah, One penny for the guy and one penny to smush. Yep. There was also a Braille printing press. Now, remember from Episode 7, Helen Keller is walking these same sidewalks right now. So Helen Keller and Margaret Brown are on this, in the same place at the same time. <laughs> and actually, her story does overlap a couple others that we did. We'll get to that in a little yep. bit. Cracker Jack made its debut here. Lovely Cracker Jack. So it delicious. Was. And another staple of ball games and hipsters everywhere, PBR made its appearance <laughs> at the Chicago World's Fair. See, what would you do? Yes, you can thank the Chicago World's Fair for your PBR. (laughs) So Margaret loved the international exhibits with all the sound and the smells and the novelty, and she really got all excited for travel. I think this is where her urge to travel was born, although I do think she missed little Egypt's hoochie-coochie dance. (laughs) I think she gave that a miss. Yeah. So when she was 27, her family made the big move to Denver. Oh, we moved on up now, girl. Indoor plumbing at last. The very first indoor plumbing. Electricity all over the place. This is... You know what's really sad? The what? House of Wood has the same wiring, I'm almost betting you, as this house that she moved into yeah, in 1895. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Probably the same plumbing. Can you see yes. Molly Brown standing right here in your foyer? Yeah, I can't, I mean, I colored right. Molly Brown again. See, I can't even get it out of my head. And I'm going to crack up, and I swear to you this is true. Guess what they called the house? The House of Lions. So we recorded in the House of Woods, and she yep. lived in the House of Lions because yep. of these two big lions that flanked the entryway. Right. It was a beautiful house. We'll put pictures up on our website, and we'll link you to it. We'll talk about that in the media section. But it's a beautiful stone house, very large on a street with other very large stone houses. The myth, of course, is that Molly Brown storms into Denver really crude and vulgar and demanding to be accepted by Denver society, which is not the case at all. The movie was right, and the legend is right, in that she did have this social nemesis, I guess you'd say. Mean girl. Yeah, that wouldn't let her into this little club. Yeah, the Sacred 36 was called... was. That particular social yeah. group. 36! Yeah. Mrs. 
Crawford Hill was the mean girl's name. You know, Mrs. Astor up in NYC, our girl from way back in episode eight, could muster 400 people with a snap of her fingers, Mrs. Hill. But you just take your little 36, Mrs. Hill. Yes. And take your little, she actually uh, wrote a publication. I, I'm thinking it was just like a little magazine. But it was entitled, What Makes Social Leadership? And Mrs. Crawford Hill wrote, The world is full of dowdy, ill-bred women who fancy that if they had money enough, they could take society by storm. You know, sure, Margaret was new money, but so was almost everybody. And even the old money was not that much older. Like, they forget. Ten, like 10 years older. We're talking people. Yeah. And so, you know, 10 years separated the, the old and new money. And some people, admittedly, yes, were scandalized by Margaret's habit of wearing makeup mm-hmm. in an era that clean scrubbed was respectable. I mean, that's, woo, that's saucy. Yeah, but see, that, she's a free thinker. She's a, I, I keep thinking of her as very modern in her thinking. Yeah. And this is what I like. This is what I'm going to present. You like me or you don't, but I'm going to charm you anyway. Yeah, and I think if she didn't respect somebody, she didn't really care what they thought anyway. But listen to this quote, though. She was exceptionally bright, a most interesting conversationalist, had a charming personality, and was a very attractive young woman. Her wealth never seemed to change her one iota. She was democratic. She was kind. So someone a lot of people want to get to know, basically. In fact, for over 20 years, the Browns, took up more newspaper society page inches than almost any other family in Denver. So don't say that they didn't get into society. Margaret and James Brown were Denver society. End of myth. Right there. And I think this is a good place for us to take a little break. And when we come back, we will see what life as a society matron in Denver was like. Right now, the Browns are living large in Denver. So what was a proper Edwardian lady to do with her time? Hmm, there's not the business opportunities the men have. (laughs) There's no more working in the drapery department. (laughs) No. So over the next ten years, Margaret Brown embarked on what she later called the greatest joy of her life, and I quote, separating the rich from their money to help the poor. Because she never forgot. Mm -mm. She, She really, you know, people talk about people who don't change, that money doesn't change them. This was one of them. One of them. <laughs> so with other club ladies, she organized traveling libraries, art shows for schools. She organized community and neighborhood vegetable gardens to help the poor feed themselves. She set up public health clinics. She worked to make lives better in other ways, too. The YWCA and the Denver Working Girls Home. Not that kind. Not working girls. <laughs> girls that happen to work. She raised the money for playgrounds and summer schools for 500 children. She copied the World's Fair that she'd been to <laughs> and made this enormous fundraiser where there were different villages for different nationalities. I mean, living dioramas, full-size Little cities. And if she wasn't in society, how could she possibly have gotten all these society people to sponsor these these tents with their heritage on display? She was teaching, like, Irish dancing at her time. I think it's amazing. And then this pivotal relationship she had with Judge Benjamin Lindsay, who was a pioneer in the concept of having a juvenile justice system. He was shocked one day. He heard he had two clients to defend, and so he opened the jail door to see who it was, and he saw these hardened criminals playing pool with what he assumed were their little sons beside them. And he's like, oh, what am I going to pull out? These guys are not going to look good in front of a jury. I'm not going to win. And to his astonishment, it was the little boys that were his clients. Right. And he's like, whoa, we're throwing little boys in with these hardened criminals that lawyers are afraid of. We're teaching them how to become hardened criminals by doing this. We're not reforming them at all. Yeah. And that was his platform, his his thing. Yeah, and and Margaret joined right on. She helped build, she was trying to get to the core of it, child care centers and public playgrounds to help keep little children off the street in the first place. Um, and then worked to make separate detention facilities for children in trouble. With the financial backing from all her fundraising and some political pressure, he, Judge Lindsay, almost single-handedly was responsible for creating America's juvenile justice system. So think about that. It was her money that pushed that button. Mm-hmm. Far-reaching, and not just in her lifetime, but beyond. Not too bad. 
she did all that in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, one of those things it would take <laughs> people 10 years to accomplish anything, but she, she had the personality. She had the, excuse me, she had the balls to ask for it. She had the brains to know how to get it done. She had the connections to know who to talk to. And she had the charm and the wit to get it, make it all work together. So life for her wasn't just philanthropic endeavors. They also built this estate out in the country, their country home. Uh, it wasn't too far outside of Denver, but it was almost like it was a million miles away. And it was a really big thing for the society people to get in their carriages and drive out to this place, which they called Evoca, based on a poem by Thomas Moore. It was this place where they could throw these weekend parties. They'd have these this barn for dances and these social events, which she would, in turn, use to make money for her philanthropic endeavors. But people would take carriage rides out in the fields and just and have picnics. It was it was a fun time out at the, the Browns' other house. Also, Margaret was a big traveler. She went all over Europe, Asia, and Africa, making friends and, you know, just being her all the way. So there's that shred of truth. Again, like, people in other countries did take to her. Sometimes she took the kids. Whenever she could, she dragged old workaholic JJ along. Sometimes she just intrepidly went by herself. And she, in this period, created connections to Newport, Rhode Island, home of all of our Gilded Age heiresses. Um, she is friends with the Countess that got her entree into New York society. So she's with the Astors. She's with the Vanderbilts. She's, you know what I mean? She's yeah, hooked up with yet another one of our podcasts. I know. That's kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. We do that. While she's in Europe, they, they were really big on education for their children, and she wanted them to have European educations. Quite honestly, it sounds like these kids went to a different school every single year. They were educated in Europe at some schools and here at some East Coast schools, so that the children were often sent off to schools all over the world. Well, and speaking of children, when Margaret was 36, her brother Daniel lost his wife. And he had four children. He just couldn't see how he could work and care for these children. And the Browns took in the three girls. Right. They had all these kids, especially for school mm-hmm. holidays, all these house full of lively young people. All the cousins got together. Yeah. It was a very close family. Yeah. She raised those nieces. Oh, definitely. There was no difference. That was another testament to her character. Well, she is such a larger-than-life figure, I guess, is what I'm saying. She's so busy doing all these fundraisers. But in between, she's carrying on this amazing social life. I just want to say, daughter Helen, who is now a teenager, is presented to society in Denver, in New York, in Newport, and in Paris. We are not playing here. Her sister, Margaret's sister, had become Baroness von Reitzenstein. Baroness. We are now titled. Titled. In this family. And Margaret Brown and her daughter attended the coronation of George V in Westminster Abbey. Okay, that is not for some little startup to do. No, you've got to know the right people and be really in to get that in. Well, her daughter Helen was presented at court. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Hello. I mean, seriously. So we are, you know, the movie just leaves out so much oh. of what needs to yeah, talk so, about the movie later. <laughs> and we're, like, we keep getting itching to talk about it, but we'll talk about it later. Okay. Unfortunately, at 43, the Denver paper outed the Browns, outed them, saying there had been a <gasps> divorce. In fact, it was not a divorce. Since they were both Catholic, uh, that is not possible. But it was a legal separation, and it had happened on the DL. It had happened in secret. Everyone was being big about it. But then when it got outed, it was very embarrassing. That was very not done in society. If you could keep it all, you know, behind the curtains, that's all well and good. But J.J. and she had been growing apart for some time. He had been in poor health, and I think it was stress because he's a freaking workaholic. Yeah. And he really, 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 really thought it was improper his wife was out there like this. He hated her being in the papers. He hated her European friends. He hated all of Europe, frankly, because it reminded him that she was not at home being his wife like mm-hmm. he thought she should be. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to say he was stingy or mean. He gave money to. I mean, but he did it quietly. Right. And well, she had to do it big to gain the attention so that more people would donate. He was longing for earlier days. I think mm-hmm. in there when life was a little simpler and yeah, life had to be extremely complicated. Can you just imagine their calendar like yeah. on the wall? <laughs> 
each day would have so much because this woman got stuff done. In his irritation with how everything was turning out, he maneuvered her separation deal to severely limit her funds to $700 a month. Now, I wouldn't be too sad for her because that's still over $23,000 a month in today's money. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's, a matter, the math. it's yeah. a matter of scale. You yeah. know what I mean? But the kids took her side. The kids took her mm-hmm. side, which infuriated him all the more. Mm-hmm. But Margaret really just had to get out of Dodge. Everyone was all up in her business. Wouldn't leave her alone. We're camping outside her house. And she fled to Newport in the winter Newport. Right. So, so you know, there's large, nobody there. Yeah. Largely low-key. Largely alone. <laughs> To a 43-room cottage. Yeah. Called Mon Etui. Which means... I, I looked it up, and the closest I can get was holster or case or, um, like, suitcase. Well, I guess it so makes I sense, am. like a protective covering. It's like her her protective shell. I don't know. I'm taking major liberties with the French language here. <laughs> well, I was looking on Google Earth to see if it's still there, because I was interested. I'm very familiar, you know, I don't know if we've talked about how close I lived uh-huh. in Newport before, but this is basically my old hood, and I knew about where it was, and so I looked it up on Google Earth, and I can't quite tell, because there's a long building that has a lot of addresses associated with it. It's right. yellow and white. If anybody's in Newport... Go to the Dwyer Insurance Company, would you, and ask him <laughs> if his house used to be Margaret, Brown. Margaret Brown's cottage. So she decided to get further out of town. She would take up her friend J.J. Astor. Sounds familiar. And his J.J. Astor. And his new very young wife, Madeline, also. on their trip to Egypt. Her daughter, Helen, came along, too. There is a great picture of them on camels. Camels. I know. And... Apparently, she had seen a fortune teller while they were in Egypt who told her there would be some type of tragedy ahead in her future on water, I believe. Yeah. So. And she's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she just brushed it off. I mean. So they finally made it back to Paris at last, but there was an urgent telegram from her son, his little baby. His little baby son was gravely ill. He married a Kansas City girl, by the way. He did. Mm. She was a socialite here in Kansas City and moved out to, she moved out to Colorado. Intrepid women all over the place. I know. So Margaret, no slouch as a grandma, as well as being a really good mother, immediately booked a cabin out on the same boat her Astor friends were traveling on. But Helen went ahead and decided to stay in Paris like they had planned to. She had some engagements to keep and et cetera. And that's fine. She said, I'll just get this boat with the Astors and, and I'll meet you back in the Right. Air. It was no big deal for her to be traveling alone. And the captain of the ship was someone that she knew. And that ship was called... The Titanic. <laughs> now, I doubt we need to go into this part too heavily. We kind of know what happened. It's a pretty famous story. Uh, you know, I'm sorry to spoil the end for you. The boat, the boat sinks. sinks. <laughs> My husband wouldn't see the movie because he's like, I know what happens. The boat sinks. Really? You don't want to witness Leonardo DiCaprio's fluffy hair I know. situation? That car scene? Steamy. Literally. I know. <laughs> so, okay, so here's Margaret's take. This is what happened from her perspective on the Titanic. Right. So she's in bed, and she's knocked out of bed by the impact, which is a little unusual for a first-class passenger, because a lot of them just referred to it as a slight rumbling. Mm -hmm. So she was literally knocked out of bed, and several times kind of stuck her head out in the hall in her nightgown, because the sounds weren't correct. And she had been experienced at sea travel before, so she knew what sounded right and what sounded wrong. And so finally she's like, well, nobody seems alarmed. I'm going to bed. So she went to bed, and she was woken up by a beating on her door and told, I'm sorry, man. And we have to go back up. We have to go on deck. It's time. Get your life belt. And so she layered up her clothing. She had like seven layers of stockings on. Yeah. And she put on anything that she could. She, she, she was very methodical about it. And she engaged her brain. She didn't freak out. Mm-hmm. She layered up as many layers as she could. She grabbed a little statue that she had gotten in Egypt, a little talisman statue, and stuck it in her pocket. Yeah, just in case. Yeah, Good luck, You never knew. She put some money, but she did have to leave quite a bit behind. There were some things that were in the hold of the Titanic that she was bringing back for museums. So, And but, those are lost forever. Yeah. So up on the deck, uh, Officer Lightoller, it's loud. It's loud up there. Like, the the steam has all been released. It's just loud. Poor old Officer Lightoller is trying to get someone, anyone, to take him seriously. He's trying to load his lifeboat, and people are jacking around, and he is getting really irritated. <laughs> um, his lifeboat has 66 capacity, and it ended up with just 24 people on it. Even Margaret Brown was thinking she wasn't going to bother getting on. She was going to see what would happen. Someone actually threw her four feet down in the boat as it was going down. 
Someone threw her in. Well, you're going to go in. Yeah. This it might have been Lytoller. I don't know. It may have been. You know, if you think about it, if you don't think there's anything serious going on, are you going to get in this rickety, tippy, psycho little boat and travel down 12 well, stories? Into the dark, cold, icy water. Yeah. So, you know, I don't blame pretty much anyone at this point when nobody really knew what was going on right. for being like, you know, I'll stay with the big one if that's okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But anyway, so she's gotten thrown into the boat. So ultimately, boat six had 21 women, a 12-year-old boy, a rude psycho crew member, and one male passenger. And they may have pulled someone out of the water. Mm -hmm. I was unclear on that. Yeah, I wasn't either. So yeah, they rowed away from the ship, and the men were of no help at all. And the women, he, she got them to pull on the oars. The fear was that if they stayed too close to the boat, the suction would pull them under. Although, how did Leonardo DiCaprio survive? Go away from the bubbles. Oh, movie magic. Right. I see. Well, he didn't really survive. <gasps> Spoiler! Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, no, no. So anyway, the panic was that they had to row away from the ship ASAP, and so the crew member manned the tiller and steered instead of pulling on an oar which irritated Margaret Brown so badly, and she finally snapped everyone out of it and is like, let's, come on, we can do this. This is, yeah. She she did take control in, in some regards, I mean, and she did share some of her clothing, her layers of clothing, to the women who were not as well-dressed. I know, some of the ladies ran out with no stockings. They had bare legs, bare feet. And this is icy cold water. The air temperature is 28 degrees. The water temperature is 27 degrees because it's salt water, and Mm -hmm. it got a little bit colder. And honestly, they had trouble getting the plug in the bottom, and so the bottom of the boat was about eight inches full of water. Yeah. How scary is that? Oh, I know. In the middle of the ocean, taking out water. Get the plug in, get the plug in. I can't get the plug in. Uh, And one of the the boy that got thrown into the boat had a broken arm, so he was... You know, he was only half of a help, and obviously all these people are upset. Their loved ones are still on the boat, you know. And the crew member actually refused to go back. Uh, after the boat had gone down, he wouldn't go back because he thought their boat would be swamped. Right. And so, you know what? I never really thought of this before, and this is the part where you think, oh, well, they're in the lifeboat. They're safe. All the people in the lifeboats, they're fine. But if you think about it, we know that other ships were coming. They didn't know that. No. They had no idea the Carpathia was on its way. No. no idea. Nobody would know that. How would they know that? But And they didn't know where the other boats were. There's no moonlight to help them. They don't know who's out there, how many lifeboats got away, and how many lifeboats even are there. There'd never been a lifeboat drill. No. And we keep thinking that they're safe, but they didn't have supplies. They didn't know. And then how freaking scary is that? Oh, having spent time even in, you know, coastal waters, imagining this type, you know, my parents obviously, I grew up on a sailboat part of the year, so we had drills, but that's terrifying even within two miles of shore. So imagine in the middle of the icy ocean, watching your ship go down, knowing that you're surrounded by dead people. And icebergs and and nothing. Scariness. And nobody's got a sap phone. Mm-mm. No, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like they didn't you know, have an emergency provi- provisions. It wasn't a. Mm-hmm. It was a lifeboat, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, honestly, the, it was so cold outside that that everyone knew they had to kind of keep rowing or they were going to freeze. So they kept warm by rowing. And when the Carpathia finally came, I didn't realize how much trouble they had getting over there. No matter how hard they rowed, they couldn't get near the boat. It was Mm -hmm. like, oh, stressful. And then just just imagine a steamship getting back, getting into it. They had to lower a, like, a swing ladder down the side, and each person had to go up individually. Scary. That time from when your feet leave the boat. I mean, you've already gotten here. It's safety is just... A hundred feet up, but that distance. I know, the anxiety must have been great. Ultimately, of course, just over 700 people and only 13 lifeboats off that big ship. Mm-hmm. 13 lifeboats made it. And only they were only in the water a few hours in the darkness all alone, but that must have seemed like a million years. Oh. Really, I think that's the part everyone forgets is that terrifying middle of the night. So even on the Carpathia, they've been saved. They're separated by class. Edwardians kill me. Yeah. So, <laughs> I know. Margaret's rummaged around and got things like socks, and she ripped blankets and sewed them smaller for the third-class children. She distributed any supplies she could find, like she shanghaied all the combs out of the out of the barber shop mm-hmm. and like stole all the toothpaste out of there and distributed the soap. And the ship's doctor was telling the first-class women, you know, we've got first-class cabins reserved for you. Why don't you just take it easy? And she was not going to let those people be. No. 
In fact, her languages came in very handy. These terrified third-class passengers right. who had lost their breadwinner. They were on their way to a new land, a new land which they were convinced was going to turn them around the second they got there. They had no way of making a living now. No. And they had no. lost everything. And so Molly Brown began fundraising right on, on the boat. I know. That, how awesome is that? She is she is hitting up the people just like she did back in Denver, getting quite a bit of money, I think, within a very short period of time. Yeah, um, about $350,000 in today's money. By the time the Carpathia landed, she had pledges of that much money. Old girl and her old game, she knows what she is doing. She is skilled. From on a boat. I know. From people who had just been through this or on the Carpathia who had just seen it and had their luxurious cruise interrupted. Well, and not only that, they're still in the water with the icebergs. Yeah. So it could happen to them, too. It's Yeah, and she's hitting them up for money. Wow. She's just awesome. And that's not the story that lasts. I know. You know, weird? singing songs in the lifeboat was a story that lasts. What? Which they probably did. But not saloon girl songs. Yeah. <laughs> Belly up to the bar boys. Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so when she got to New York and found that the baby grandson, remember him? The whole mm-hmm. reason we're not in Paris right now. Reading the headlines about the terrible disaster. Yeah. yeah. So he's fine. He's recovered. I mean, it's taken a while. You can't just hop on a plane. So she went to her hotel with her brother Daniel, who had raced across the country by train to meet her. Um, she had continued her efforts. She assisted in documenting, this is important, where people had gone so that relief money could get to them. Right. She tried to make sure everybody had been met by somebody, at least a relief agency. She's very practical, like Claire Barton practical. Yes. It's like, you know. That's such a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know what? We can pray all we want for them, Mm. but what they need is bread and they need shoes. So Mm. if we can handle the bread and shoes... Yeah, afterward we'll handle the rest. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah, and she's keeping track of. I mean, yeah, she's not just a big promiser. Yeah, like a lot of posers could be. She's correct. She's a doer. She was the spokesperson, actually, for the rest of her life for the survivors committee Mm -hmm. of the Titanic Mm -hmm. tragedy. Yeah, she presented the captain, Captain Rostron of the Carpathia, uh, not only with a, a big loving cup, which was a big trophy. A uh, very famous picture of her that went all over the world, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, not including only that. Including to our website. Yeah, including to our website. <laughs> but she gave him her good luck charm, her Egyptian good luck charm. She mm-hmm. brought all the way in her pocket just in case she gave it to him. And um, she was very modest about her own role. She said, I simply did my duty as I saw it. I'm sure there's nothing I did that anyone else would not have done. Who else but was so qualified for that? Really? Nobody. Because if they would have done it, they would have done it. Yeah. I mean, these are the the people she's on the boat with weren't all second or third class passengers. They were her people were on that boat, and they weren't doing it to the extent that yeah. she was. Nobody, nobody stepped no. up. It, well, now you know what I lie. People stepped up as her assistants. Once she did it, they yeah. did help her. Yeah, I will oh, say yeah. yes. I'm not saying they all jacked around. No, and you can only have one leader. Yeah. If you have more than that, it just gets complicated. So, But she just modestly said, I found a lot of opportunities to be useful, and I was grateful to be able to do things. She rocks the party. I love her. I know. I do, too. (laughs) Um, But hardly anyone had known in Denver that she was on the Titanic at all. Nobody knew to worry, except her children, who she had told Mm -hmm. that she was coming. Nobody knew to worry. Uh, And so the shock in Denver was great when all these photos started coming out. Mrs. Brown, blah, blah, blah. And you know what J.J. Brown said about her? I can't believe this. What? She's too mean to sink. That's right. (laughs) That bitter man, unlike the movie, there's no reconciliation coming, my friends. No, no, no. He's not there behind the door with arms wide open for her. Not at all. But guess who gave a dinner in her honor upon her return to Denver? Hmm, mean girl turned nice girl, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Mrs. Crawford Hill? But is she one of those people that only likes you when you're famous? Do you think that was a genuine welcome home, or was like a, hmm, now that you're famous, you can be my friend. You can be in the 37. But uh, Margaret so wanted to testify before Congress. She so did. She was fired up. that She couldn't believe how badly this had all mm-hmm. gone. And she was just hopping mad. She she wanted to testify, but unfortunately, of the people that testified, only six were women. Only two showed up in person at all. She never did get called before 
Congress, which is strange since she was so famous by then, you would think they would think of calling her. But she got her voice heard anyway. She wrote this huge three-part story that was serialized in newspapers all around the world, um, using the media very much like our friend Nellie Bly did. You know, just get get the story out in as many papers as possible. So it gripped the nation. And why did it sell papers? Oh, certainly. So now is the time to take, I think, another little break. And when we come back, we will discover how Margaret Brown used her fame. And we're back. Margaret Brown is famu. Margaret Brown decided to harness her fame and make a run for the state senate. But of course, where else are you going to throw yourself? I mean, seriously, let's just objectively look at this. She is the kind of person to be a very effective politician. Her quote was, why should a woman be mildewed at 40? That's the best time to start a real career. She was such a forward-thinking person. It is the best time to start a career. And I'm going to tell you this. If you are on the cusp of 40 and you are dreading it, I want you to send me an email because I have nothing but fabulous things to say about making that leap and crossing the bridge to 40. It was awesome. That's I digress. <laughs> but, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> Well, Newport loved Margaret Brown, who was increasingly more forthright than ever before, and she genuinely did not care if people disapproved of her. But know? she did. She was that way before. Yeah. But now, now it's all on a there. bigger stage. She had made friends with another powerful Newport matron who also didn't care what people thought of her, Alva Vanderbilt. Now, if you haven't yet, you should listen to episode 9 of our podcast, in which Alva Vanderbilt plays a big part, or you should read the chapter in my favorite book, To Marry an English Lord, called The Pushiest Mama. (laughs) Yes, you should. There you go. And Alva Vanderbilt backed Margaret's drive to run for the Senate. She wanted to take the place of the first woman senator, Helen Robinson. Margaret was endorsed by the National Women's Suffrage Association of New York. Okay. She's got some names pushing her behind her. Now, ironically, we didn't mention this before. Margaret's home state of Colorado in 1893 was the very first state to grant women the right to vote. Now, not the first place, because Wyoming did it first, but Wyoming was only a territory and not a state. So Colorado Mm -hmm. got in there with the official stamp of, you know. Mm -hmm. So Margaret's from the forward-thinking women's suffrage state anyway. Right. Some states trickled in, but the whole country didn't go down the women's suffrage road till 1920. Right. She said, our men out in Colorado do not question our right to vote. They realize our right to have a speaking part in the affairs of the country in which we, as well as they, must live. In other words, our men believe in us. Whoa. So she was giving props to the men in Colorado, by the way, you know, and she was gearing up to fight. And then people started to go, wait, why are we going to fight against the only other woman? Can we just not pick someone else to fight against? So, oh, we should probably just replace the man. Oh, that's a good idea. So when they were gearing up for that strategy change, a couple things happened. War broke out. That's a big one. That's a huge one. World War One broke out, and she really postponed her bid, thinking, you know, actually, the people that are experienced should probably stay in charge right now. Right. Now, yeah. also, her sister is a German baroness, so mm-hmm. that wouldn't look good in the election campaign either, since the Germans were the bad guys in this deal. Margaret did the next best thing, as far as she could see. She donated her 43-room cottage to the Red Cross to use as a hospital. Where did we see that? Oh, yes, Downton Abbey. Those copiers. I know. Across the <laughs> pond, copying. So she grabbed some nurses, and she grabbed some equipment, and she headed off to France to establish a relief hospital. Because that's what you do. There's a war breaking out. You go towards it and try to help people there. Just like Clara Barton. <laughs> she just kills me. Every, she is so feisty. She just doesn't sit around and think about stuff. She's a woman of action, isn't hey, she? Yes. So while she was there, Margaret worked with J.P. Morgan's daughter, Anne. So here's another extremely wealthy woman who ditched her picture hats and she ditched her fabulous lifestyle. And she created the Committee for the Assistance of Devastated France. Um, she was a director. 
of this company for Ann Morgan. And here's what their, their purpose was to kind of help rebuild behind the lines. France was wrecked, mm-hmm. just wrecked. Yeah. And they were going to try to build up the civilian populace again. There's no point having won this war if we can't help the people that are so down now. So what they would do is build houses, import seed, teach people to farm, import livestock, um, obtain and distribute even household implements like axes. She rebuilt schools. They rebuilt libraries, medical facilities. You know what the rules were to go over and work? You had to speak French. You had to pay $1,500 to support yourself while you were over there. Right. You had to go buy your uniform at B. Altman. Of course you did. <laughs> yes. Like, pick up your uniform on the way over, right. would you? Stop. Um, and you had to be gone for six months. And, you know, female doctors, which not so accepted in this country, totally traveled over there to help with this effort, too. Because they could perform their services, what they were trained to do. Uh, women yeah. rallied to yeah. help people. I often think, I wonder what this world would be like if it was all women in charge. Because, you know, what are they thinking of doing? They're thinking of going and helping in a real practical way. Yeah. A war-torn country. This isn't politics. This is, I'm going to help out the people that need help. And we'll talk about politics later. I just love it. I couldn't agree with you more. I keep thinking we have a mutual friend, Lindsay, who just says, moms get done. And these women are getting done. That's true. Hooray, Lindsay. I know. Shout out to Lindsay. (laughs) Then, when Margaret Brown was 55, her husband, I can't say ex-husband, they weren't divorced, but her long estranged husband, J.J. Brown, died rather suddenly. And as much venom as he spewed on her, here's what she had to say about him. Shall we investigate our character? Let me say here, I've been all over the world. I've known more or less intimately the greatest people in the world, from the kings down or up, as one cares to view them, and I've never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. In spite of certain qualities of our natures, which made companionship impossible, I salute his memory and claim him to have been without a peer. Nice! So who's the bigger person, is what uh, I'm going to say. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a f- the father of her children, and she's totally honoring him. I think that's great. If he had been so smart as to honor the remaining family, here's another smart man, just like we had talked about in Nellie Bly. This is like, we just keep referring to other podcasts, but here's another smart man that dies without a will. I know, it's a mess. So, I mean, when that happens, it's got to go to court, and this is pitting Margaret against her children. Well, complications and suspicion. What the heck? People are insane. Yeah, well, it's money involved. I hate that. I seriously hate that. It's happened not in my side of the family. It's happened in real life. I can't be more specific, but I just, it's very irritating. I have seen it as well, yes. It took a long time, but eventually they made up. But this caused some bad blood for years. Yeah, it did. And for a family that had been very close up until this point, yeah. So I'm very glad they made up at last. At 58, Margaret worked to create the Titanic Monument in Washington, D.C., it's a man standing in the I'm King of the World pose. Yeah, he totally you want is. To imagine Although it. you might say you could say the Jesus pose, too. Because, I mean, he's standing with his arms outstretched. <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't, but I would. The statue reads, To the brave men who perished in the wreck of the Titanic, April 15th, 1912, they gave their lives that women and children might be saved. I might add here, she completely disapproved of that, by the way. Yeah. She thought, if we're going to demand equality, we oughtn't to have been saved first. And what's the point of saving the women and children if you're going to leave the breadwinners behind Mm -hmm. and create so much more torment for those who have lived? Right. So she never did. Quite honestly, they weren't all men that died. Oh, that's true. That's the part that stands out. It's the first line. But she worked to have it erected, so that's important. So that same year... That same year, I think she's like Angela Lansbury, where chaos follows her around. (laughs) She survived a devastating hotel fire in Palm Beach, Florida, kept her head again, and led a group of shocked and frightened guests calmly down a fire escape and (laughs) saved their lives. Of course she did. Yeah, why would, yeah, yeah. That's what she does. Someone's like, okay, fire, check, water, check. Like, what other calamities? This is the stuff movies are made out of, all this stuff. And they left it out. Totally. 
At 60, she drove to Washington, D.C. with an exiled Russian princess to demand that Calvin Coolidge, the President of the United States, enact the Equal Rights Amendment, which he declined to do. But still, <laughs> you're going to put a princess in your vehicle and storm the White House. Also at 60, her lifelong dream of being on the stage finally came true. She did. She went to study acting. And she performed like an homage to Sarah Bernhardt who she loved and idolized. Sarah Bernhardt was famous at an advanced stage for playing even young boy parts on stage. And so the homage was almost like a direct, here's a woman at 60 performing Sarah Bernhardt playing these parts. (laughs) Very understandable to the audiences that Mm -hmm. saw it and why to claim. Yeah. She did a great job. She did. The French government gave her an award called the French Legion of Honor. Now, admittedly, a lot of people got this award. Yeah, but a lot of big name people got this award. Do you have the list? They got the key names, some big, some biggies. Sarah Bernhardt, we mentioned. Uh, Jane Goodall has received that in recent mm-hmm. times. Julia Child, J.K. Rowling, and Josephine Baker. Awesome. Yeah, so we're in good company. It's basically um, for cultural contributions. Yes, and before you write to us and ask us to put um, those women who have passed on our list, they're all on the list already. They are all on the list. They are all on the list. So she um, received that for her war work and for... They listed that long list of philanthropic activities that we have just touched on here mm-hmm. in this podcast. Um, she was recommended by Anne Morgan, the woman that she worked with in France, and by good old Captain Rostron of the Carpathia. So those were her two sponsors. And then, suddenly, with no wind-up, no warning, and in her sleep, Margaret Brown died. At the age of 65 in the Barbizon Hotel in New York City on October 26, 1932. She might have died the way she wanted to. I'm going to quote from a book by Kristen Iverson. She said, I'm a daughter of adventure. That means I never experience a dull moment and must be prepared for any eventuality. I never know when I might go up in an airplane and come down with a crash or go motoring and climb a pole or go off for a walk in the twilight and return all messed up in an ambulance. That's my arc, as the astrologers would say. It's a good one, too, for a person who'd rather make a snap out than a fade out of life. Nice. She knew exactly, you know, she was like, why fade away? Go out with the thing, snap out. Love that. The myths and stories got out of hand almost immediately. You've seen the results. Or maybe you haven't. The unthinkable Molly Brown, which I like to call the... Unwatchable Molly Brown. It's a 1964 movie with Debbie Reynolds in the lead role. And while she did earn an Academy Award for this performance... Which astonishes me. It makes me want to lay on the floor and fan myself. It might be one of those, like, for her body of work awards. You know, they sometimes, like, you know... I don't, I don't know. know. And you know, I don't have a problem with the stage play, which is bizarre. But this one, it was just contract. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I, I hadn't, I thought I had seen it. I, but we both got it and watched it separately. Oh, no, no, no. And then I think we were like live tweeting, like, pour yourself a drink, girl. You're gonna need it. It was, yeah, this movie was absolutely horrendous. It, it not only was just chock full of inaccuracies, but just from the first scene, it's a, a baby floating down a river in a cradle, and the baby falls out of the cradle, and, I mean, face first into the water and swims to shore. But as a mother, you're like, oh, my gosh, the baby in the water. You're freaking out. And it just went actually downhill, downhill from, there. from there. Yep, yep, it sure did. But um Harvey Presnell, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, played J.J. in the movie, and he was kind of creepy. Although later in life, um, he was not. He he was in the movie Fargo, who was the Oldsmobile dealer in the movie Fargo. And he wasn't creepy as an as a older actor, but there was something just about him that was just a little... Stalkery. A little bit. And... They went with the uh, Seamus story. You know, Molly wants to find have a house with a room for her daddy, Seamus, so he can drink his jug of whiskey and luxury. Um was played by Ed Begley, who was the father of Ed Begley Jr. We've all probably seen the grand James Cameron movie Titanic. And I have to tell you, physical casting. Oh, Spectacular. yes. Spectacular. Oh, yes. And we maybe we should have said that up front. Get this image in your head of Kathy Bates. In Titanic. Yeah, here toward the end, when she's an, a mature lady, Kathy right. Bates is a dead ringer, my yeah. friends. Yeah, and she apparently had auburn hair, although you were telling me a story about 
<laughs> Once it was discovered that she was fine of the Titanic, she sent a telegram to her daughter, Helen, saying, I'm fine, I've been pickled in brine, and I'm all dried off now, don't worry about me, I'm fine. And then she goes, hey, go to that place and ask the man about that henna for my hair. Just ask the guy, he'll know, he'll know what I mean, just tell him it's me. So there might have been a little touch-up later. Enhancement. Yeah, she's all, yeah, Titanic, this is, uh, can you get me the stuff? Yeah. <laughs> So, yes. So, physically like her. Probably, diction-wise, similar. You know, she was, she probably had a little bit of a twang to her voice, but the words that she used, probably not. Well, and there is a strange boomerang in that movie. There is a dinner scene where the Molly Brown character, shall we say, is entertaining some of the reluctant upper class at the captain's table with a story about how J.J. came home drunk as a pig celebrating and lit the money on fire. Thus, art is only imitating art. Art. And not reality at no, all. No, not at all. <laughs> Which is funny. So next time you watch Titanic. Yeah, and that. when the ship goes down, she says, there's something you don't see every day. Probably not the words that were coming out of her no. mouth at the time. Although my favorite line in that movie is said to her when she says, <laughs> we've got to go back. And the sailor says, shut your pie hole. <laughs> that has got to be my all-time favorite. I, that's really sad, isn't it? That yeah. whole movie and all the research and my favorite line is shut your pie hole. <laughs> Poor yeah. Kathy Bates. Poor Kathy. She didn't deserve that abuse. No. Also, A Night to Remember uh, is another movie. I have not seen it. It is from, I believe, the 50s, when shown to a survivor of Titanic, who didn't quite understand the premise of cinema, <laughs> the the survivor began to cry and said if they were close enough to take pictures of it, why didn't they come help us? Oh. I know. It's very upsetting. But it tells you the authenticity of it. Wow. Yeah. So that was a little bit sad. So the, a night to remember... At least according to that survivor, the story itself of the sinking might have been close enough to create that emotional drama. Sure, sure. Um, As usual, you know we like to follow dead women on Twitter. You can follow Molly Brown. It's actually tweets from the Molly Brown House Museum in Denver. But you can follow her on Twitter, and you get some historical ones, but you get a lot of information about the museum. And we'll, we'll link you up with the museum in Denver. It's the home that the Browns had on Pennsylvania Street. The house itself has quite a history. After the Browns left, it became a boarding house. It became a gentleman's boarding house. As the, you know, as the neighborhood was turning, it became a home for wayward girls, and it was going to be torn down in um, was purchased by a historical organization that restored it to how it would have looked um, when the Browns lived in it. And it's open now as a museum. So that's, if you're in Denver, that's a kind of a cool place to go visit. And if you happen to be in Hannibal and you're probably there, honestly, for the Mark Twain situation, but if you're there for any Mark Twain events, you should look up Molly Brown's house there. It's called Molly Brown's Childhood Home, I believe, but it is still preserved. They they went in and redid it. It's a lot smaller than the other house, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's a little tiny white four-room house, but it is there, too. And seriously, if you're there for the Mark Twain tour, yeah, you should you see know, experience everything Hannibal has to offer. It's on Butler Street. Mm-hmm. I assume any citizen of Hannibal can tell you where that is. That's right. Let me tell you a lot of this podcast um, is based on a book by Kristen Iverson called Molly Brown Unraveling the Myth. And the reason this is so spectacular is right after Margaret Brown died, all the stories were getting so out of hand that the family honestly in dismay clammed up and wouldn't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, the real stories, the real letters, what was going on, they just wouldn't tell anyone because they were so sick of what had happened to their mother's reputation. Mm -hmm. And finally, this writer has gotten with the grandchildren and the other descendants and collected all this together. So I highly recommend it. Our library system, given that this is the 100th anniversary of the Titanic, has gotten in a lot of copies of Titanic-related material. Mm -hmm. And yours probably does, too. So you might hit the library for this one. Yeah, and then there are there's an infinite number of children's books. But the best one that I found, the one that I'm sharing with my little son, is called Molly Brown sharing her good fortune and it's in curiously enough the community builders series so they know they know it's not all about the titanic they know it's all about philanthropy and what she did with her money so this is slanted the correct way i'm telling you and it's got great great pictures even the cover picture is a, a photograph that you don't see in a lot of books 
Yeah, it's very good. And then at the end, it will give you what can you do for your community? How can you use this person's example to better where you live and that kind of thing? It's good that's great. if you're using this in schools. That's yeah, a good or homeschooling. Use. Yeah, that's a great one. A couple of stranger links, perhaps. TheMorgan.org is a multimedia site about the rebuilding of France. So it basically covers, this is very famous, Anne Morgan's mm-hmm. um, committee. Right. To help France. Um, and so you can find that online, too. And we're going to link to that. That is a spectacular thing I had no idea about. Right. Until starting. Here's another spectacular this. thing that we had no idea about is the Titanic Belfast, which is a. From what? <laughs> the website looks like it's going to be some kind of amusement park slash museum. Rides are mentioned. It opens this summer. I've not seen it yet. Uh, as we're not in Ireland. As we're not in Ireland, it's not open. Yeah. Uh, it seems alarming Peculiar. to me, but I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Uh, once it's open, perhaps we can get some first person. Yeah, but we'll we'll link you up to what we found and TitanicBelfast.com. We'll keep our eye on that one. So that is the life of Margaret Tobin Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown, Molly Brown, etc. <laughs> <laughs> However, you know her name by the now you know her story. And it's so strange that so much of this exciting story has been obscured. And I'll just leave you with this. It took a powerful myth to obscure the significance of Margaret Tobin Brown's own life. A reporter for the Denver Post wrote Margaret a fitting eulogy. Not being a man, she determined to be a successful woman, to see this world, to meet its best, and be one of them. She had a definite, fearless personality. She knew what she wanted. She went after it and seldom failed her goal. Her greatest quality was her courage to always be herself. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with, with an, an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Do it bravely, save me from